Okay, welcome everybody. Thanks for uh, your patience here this evening, and I am excited to get back to the Barrow and um, uh, to um, uh, to to see how uh, Frodo is going to escape. So you recall that last time we had, we only really talked about I think three passages. We didn't. We got through somewhat less than a page last time, but it was an important page. Uh, so we 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 talked principally about Frodo's struggle with the ring. So the, the temptation, which seems very clearly, I think, to come from the ring, uh, to put on the ring, abandon his friends, and run off and escape. And then we have Frodo's resistance to that. So that, that spirit of courage that had arisen within Frodo, which continues, and, and so he resists alike the temptation of the ring, which seems to be exploiting, piggybacking upon the fear that was already... Uh, that was already laid upon him by the white. And then we had the walking hand, and we talked about the, the walking hand and whether it is or is not a disembodied hand, um, but more importantly, the the whole sort of ritual feel of that and what is the white doing and, and how does that seem to be accomplishing anything. Um, so that's where we ended last time as uh, Frodo was just about... He, he did break off the hand. Remember, he didn't cut it off. He broke it off uh, when he hit the wrist with his sword. Um, but um, tonight we're going to be uh, looking at the uh, eviction uh, of, uh, of the white. Uh, and uh, I, have, uh, I have titled the class, Now at Last I've Caught You, uh, because of course there's a really fun irony in what happens here in tonight's passage. Um, the quotation, Now at Last I've Caught You, is from the Adventures of Tom Bombadil poem, the, the, the 1930s poem that we read uh, together during the webathon a couple months ago. Um, but of course, in the poem, it's the Barrow White who invades Tom's house. He comes in, he enters Tom's house and is knocking at his bedroom door. Uh, and Now at Last I've Caught You is the end of the Barrow White's speech to Tom Bombadil as he's threatening him from outside his bedroom door. Before, of course, Tom responds and sends him running off and leaping through the window and dashing back to the Barrow Downs. Uh, uh, I, was gonna, I was about to say for dear life, but of course that would be uh, a really too painfully ironic from the White's perspective. Um, the fun thing, of course, when you know the poem is to see how things are reversed right uh in uh, uh in in the book it's tom who is going to be knocking on the door of the white and invading his bedroom uh and so when tom comes and sings another banishing song he sings a, a sort of banishing song um sending away anyway the white uh who comes to his house and uh he doesn't seem in the end all that alarmed by the barrow white um even though the barrow white seems to be kind of the most alarming of uh, the four creatures with whom Tom tussles in The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. Um, but anyway, anyway, so the point is that uh, I love that sort of reversal here. And of course, now at last I've caught you, uh, it could apply just as easily, indeed better, uh, from Tom to the Barrow White here than it did from the Barrow White to Tom in the original poem. Um, uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, Brandon. Also, I do, I like it. The Barrow White does seem to be a little bit bent out of shape that he doesn't get a, an invite to the wedding, right? Um, 
I know, right? It's uh, it's just sad. Anyway, before I get started, though, one real quick announcement. Uh, I just wanted to remind you, all of you who live down in the Texas area or can travel easily to Dallas-Fort Worth, don't forget that TexMoot is coming up. TexMoot is January 13th. Now, that's still a month from now, but uh, we are running out of registration spots. Uh, we're going to have to stop registration before too very long. We still have uh, a couple weeks of open registration, then we might try to hold a few more, but uh, time is getting limited, time is getting limited, and space will be limited thereafter, so uh, I urge you, although we're still a month away, I urge you not to delay if you think you might be able to join us. Uh, it's uh, it's a very small registration, what, $30 registration fee, I believe, for TextMoot. Um, uh, so, and that includes lunch, right? Uh, and your day with uh, the panel and a party and all kinds of things. It's going to be great. Uh, so, um, uh, and I'm looking forward. I'm, I'm giving a, I'm giving a talk uh, down there, kind of bringing together some ideas that I've had uh, for a while. Talking. The primary theme of my talk is going to be escape uh, from, uh, as, as Tolkien describes escape in. Uh, uh, on fairy stories and thinking about that and release from bondage and the lay of Lathian and all that stuff. I'm kind of and thinking about that in conjunction with C.S. Lewis. It's going to be it's going to be fun. I've been I've been kind of rolling this talk around in my head for a little while now. Um, anyhow, uh, but speaking of escape from bondage, I would like to transition back to the Barrow and uh, let's see what we can do. So, all right. Um, Let's um, uh, so let's let's move on. For, oh, but for, okay, 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 okay. Before actually, we're still back to the barrel, but I, I forgot a couple a uh, couple comments I wanted to address first. First, uh, from Kyle Winiecki. Um, Upon our readings of the White Song and the surrounding passages, I noticed uh, somewhat of a focus on hands during the events in the Barrow. Certainly true. Um, And, of course, I'd been talking about the connection between Till the Dark Lord lifts his hand over Dead Sea and Withered Land, and then, of course, the physical hand that comes crawling in. Kyle points out, I think very appropriately, the the central placement, indeed the primary placement, or it's first in the list, of the things that the White is... uh, is cursing to coldness, right? In that first line, cold be hand and heart and bone. Really great, uh, really great point. And of course, the rings on the fingers of the hobbits, right? Yep, I agree. Um, uh, anyway, so he says, what took my notice is that both heart and bone seem to be something that the white would be most interested in turning cold uh, and like to himself. One could argue that the heart, in a certain sense, signifies the soul that he is trying to entrap, and that the bone could signify the body that goes along with these soul, and that these two things are connected. I I, I like that reading a lot. Um, Heart, I I think, certainly works uh, there in that way, and I would would broaden it uh, beyond... I mean, soul, I think, works as well. Another way that I would think about that is will, right? It's really kind of Frodo's heart that's at stake, I think it's fair to say, in this fight with with the with the barrel white that's been going on there, um, so um, so yeah, that that seems to you know like the the, uh, the bone is already on its way towards coldness, right? They're all three of them laid out and ready to go, right? The heart is being overcome, is being well fought with. He's hoping to overcome the heart of Frodo, and it seems that maybe in a sense he's already overcome the hearts of the other three. I know those of us diehard Sam Gamgee fans are going to have a hard time with that, but it kind of seems that way. Um, we'll come back to this in, in a minute. But uh, but again, I like Kyle's question 
hand, why hand, there as the first item in that list? Uh, what, is that, what does that suggest? What is the implication of the inclusion of hand uh, in that list? So why is it that hand is put together with these things? Okay. It seems to me, Kyle says, that the hand could also signify something that the white is trying to turn cold. Agreed. Upon thinking about this, I believe the hand referred to could possibly signify the ability to craft and create things, like setting your hand to something, or the love not the love not too well the work of your own hands, right? That seems to me to fit. As we know both to Tolkien personally and in the secondary world he made, the ability to create is something that is both in our nature and divine, in the sense that the ability to create is given to us by God slash Eru. Why I believe the hand could signify the ability to create is that with most things we do, uh, we in some way use our hands. Yeah, again, I was quoting a couple things that I think we can see that phrasing to be sort of congenial to the way Tolkien uh, talked about that. I like this idea. Um, I think I would broaden it a little bit. Here's why I would broaden it a little bit. I... I agree that that association between hand and, you know, sort of sub-creation or uh, that kind of craftsmanship is a, a, a perfectly valid Tolkienian association. In order for me to be really happy with applying it in this situation, though, I would want some local justification for it, right? You know, some indication that that kind of craftsmanship in that way, that that kind of creative energy is something that the Barrow White is really interested in, is something that, um, you know, that we really see being um, being kind of operative here, or the White being explicitly interested in. I don't see that exactly here, but again, I, I still think this is a really important observation, and I don't, I don't, sort of categorically resist this interpretation of hand, I think what I would want to do is just kind of expand it out a little bit. Um, again, what I would, um, what I would want to look at is the way in which, the way in which hand is used, uh, hand is used here. The, the primary thing that I would point to, right, is that, uh, just as hand begins the incantation, cold be hand, uh, hand also ends it with that line that I talked about so much before, till the dark Lord lifts his hand, uh, over dead sea and withered land. So what is hand, what is, hand associated with here. And Marianne, I agree with you. Power, power to act, right? To lift his hand over the Dead Sea and Withered Land is to command it, to rule it, right? To uh, to sort of assert authority over it so it's connected with will. I don't think it's the same thing as heart, though. I, I, I agree that the um, the sort of the differentiation or like the, the inclusion of both hand and heart in the list does suggest that we're talking about we're talking about different things. Hrothgar, I think I'm thinking in, in similar kinds of directions there, that the hand is uh, one medium through which the will imparts itself into the world. Yes, that the hand is sort of the the assertion of the will or mm, the connection between the will and the rest of the world around them, right? Um that is to say, like, uh, it's a different thing to say that the Dark Lord's heart, right, desires to possess the world, right? But that's not to say that he's actually lifting his hand over the world, right? That that suggests some kind of implementation, right, some actualization of that desire. And that does that's the kind of thing that hand seems to be involved in. So, yeah, Hrothgar, like, doing stuff, right, asserting your will. And that could mean in a dominion-like sense, as it clearly is the case uh, in, uh, uh, in, in the Dark Lord's instance, right, at the end of the poem. And so I suspect that hand 
has that same implication, therefore, at the beginning when he is cursing, as it were, both the hand, the heart, and the bone um, of the hobbits. He's cursing his body. I, I, the connection with bone and body, I think, is pretty clear, especially since Barrow Whites are associated with bone, and is, this seems to be a sort of a whiteification kind of curse that's going on here, you know, dooming him to be like him, dooming Frodo to be like himself, the white. Um, and but the whites appear to be bony. The primary evidence I take for the boniness of whites, we get so little in the way of physical description of them, but um, the, the, the primary evidence for this I take from the poem, from the Tom Bombadil poem, where he's associated with, with he's, as he's running, he's rattling his bone rings, uh, for instance, which could be jewelry that are made of bones that are rattling on his fingers, but still, even if they're rattling, it suggests that his hands are also skeletal, and so therefore the rings are rattling around on them. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, yeah, Matt, I agree. Hand can also be the thing that bonds one to another, like give me your hand in marriage is a really good example, right? Um, raising your hand to take an oath, yes, yes. Um, yeah, yeah, and good, Fourth Dauntless, I agree. The breaking off of the hand rather than the uh, slicing off of the hand or the cutting off of the hand does also suggest uh, perhaps a skeletal arm rather than a, you know, a fleshy zombie arm, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, so JJ is, wa- is wondering if we can sort of summarize the Colby hand and heart and bone as do no more, feel no more, move no more. Yeah, maybe. Rather than feel no more, I would actually say sort of like will no more, like choose no more, right? Um, perhaps. I mean, I, I think feeling is a part of it with heart as well, but I, I think that the heart in this sense is probably more of an active principle than a like a receptive principle, right? less about feeling things and more about choosing things. But but I, 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 in general, I think I agree with that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Darren, I agree, given the age of the bodies, one must imagine that they'll be skeletal. Notice we haven't talked much about what the whites are, right? Um, like, what is it? Is it undead? Is it a risen corpse? Exactly. What exactly is the thing? Um, that was a question I was kind of dodging last time, pretty much on purpose. And I'm going to carry on dodging that for a little bit longer. That is, I'm going to wait until we get to, uh, a little bit further down the road, maybe, if we are especially efficient with our poetry discussion tonight, we might even get to it. We might not get to it until next week. But this week or next week, um, the pa- just I don't want to be cryptic about it. The passage I'm waiting for is the Mary's passage, the, uh, the Mary's memory, right? When Mary wakes up and remembers something. I want to be thinking about that in conjunction with this question because um, it seems it strikes me as relevant. And so I want to wait until we get as much data as we're going to get about the Barrowites before uh, I try to answer that question. Um, so, okay. Um, good. All right. So let's, um, uh, let's keep going. Other question, the white and the ring. Uh, this is picking up on some things that we said last time, but I thought it was a it was a good uh, kind of summary and moving it forward a little more pointedly by Brandon. I've been fascinated by a friendly neighborhood grave dude's interactions with the ring bearer in particular. The fact that so far as we have seen his motivations, I don't think he knows that Frodo has the ring. He isn't targeting the ring and doesn't react to it at all. 
He just seems to want to kill Frodo in his creepy burial ritual. Also, I think the ring isn't really aware of the white. Notice it doesn't react until Frodo begins to be afraid. It doesn't know there's a white nearby in the same way it would know that the Nazgul were near. Frodo's temptation begins much earlier when he sees a wraith. And I wonder if that's because the ring feels not only fear, but the presence of those enslaved to Sauron through it. But I see no evidence that it does more than react to external stimuli. It reacts strongly to the Nazgul and reacts to Frodo's fear. It tempts Frodo in the, house of Tom, in the house of Bombadil only once Frodo has it on. It seems it isn't capable of forming plans, only reacting to what's around it. Uh, yeah, now there's a lot there. I want to, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep seeing the, rea- you know, the, the reaction of the ring when it's near the Nazgul. That's a really important sort of data set, right, for us to be looking at. And we have seen that a couple times before. And I, this is, I think, one of Brandon's most important observations here uh, in this post is the difference... We talked about the ring tempting Frodo. We didn't talk about how interesting it is, exactly as Brandon points out, that it doesn't tempt Frodo until this point, right? Um, When the Nazgul was just just snuffling its way across the grass, right, uh, Frodo immediately begins to feel the temptation to put on the ring to escape from it, right? That doesn't happen with the Barrow White. It's not until he's already captured, but he's, he's... under the influence of the Barrow White, right? As soon as he passes between those two standing stones and the darkness falls and he falls off his horse, right? He is, he is already under the spells of the Barrow White, right? At no point in there does he think about the ring. At no point there is he tempted to put it on, try to use it to escape. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that that would be the most practical response. Like, it's dark and I can't see anything, so why don't I put on an invisibility ring to make me extra difficult to see? Like, I, you know, whatever. It, you know, you come up with lots of naturalistic explanations for why he doesn't think invisibility would come in per- particularly handy at that particular moment. But, of course, I don't think that that's the real issue here, right? I think that the real issue here is how the ring acts upon Frodo's mind and the fact that it doesn't act on Frodo's mind until he is already sort of well prepped for it. Um, in fact, um, the thing that really interests me is that uh, 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 Brandon says that it responds to Frodo's fear, which is kind of true. But what what struck me, and I didn't really think about this so much, Brandon, until you pointed this out, is that actually what it's, what it's more literally responding to is Frodo's courage, right? It's the paragraph about the temptation to put on the ring, that comes after Frodo's seed of courage flares up, right? Um, So he seems to be passing the test, and then the ring hits him with his don't-you-want-to-escape-and-save-your-life whammy, right? Which he likewise resists, right? Um, But anyway, I, I think that Brandon's point about... It doesn't see. It doesn't seem to respond to the presence of the whites in the same way. I agree that there's no evidence whatsoever that the white is a, is aware of the ring. You can say, well, why is Frodo singled out from the other three, right? But there are several reasons why he's singled out. Um, uh, Mike, uh, who's here tonight, Mike uh, made a great point about that. A couple great points about that in his response to Brandon's post, where he was saying that Frodo's already different. He's been named an elf friend. For instance, he's the only one of the four who's been named an elf friend. So he's going to be different. Um, And he also is sort of greater than the others, Um, even apart from the fact that he has the ring. And even the fact that he has the ring might 
you know, it lends him power according to his stature, right? So he's already kind of being enhanced to some extent, even kind of very indirectly, um, by being a ring bearer. He's being he's being changed, right? He's growing. Um, so Frodo's different, but but again, there's nothing. I mean, you'd think if he was even vaguely aware of the ring, there'd be some evidence of it in that incantation. Right. Either he'd be appealing to Frodo as like a fellow, hey, like I sense, you know, dark power about you. Like, can we, you know, work together or whatever or his arrival or his... no. I mean, the approach that he seems to be taking to Frodo is the approach of like the dead to the living. Right. This is um, the struggle between. Frodo in the Barrow White is like warmth versus cold, life versus death, right? I mean, that we were that's what we were looking at the, the week before last. Um, it doesn't seem to have the first thing to do with the ring from either one of their perspectives until Frodo undergoes his temptation. Um, so, um, uh, anyway, yeah. So I, I definitely agree that, um, that one thing that I think that we can take from this, it's not like creatures that, you know, like evil creatures can automatically sense the ring or automatically going to defer to the ring or something like that, right? They don't. Clearly, they don't. The Barrowites don't. Um, And um, anyway, yeah. Um, So yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, as far as what this proves about the ring. Again, I want to I want to hold off a little bit on drawing conclusions about its response to the Nazgul because Brandon, one thing I would point out, there's another f- uh there's another factor in there, right? The other factor involved uh with the t- with the ring's response to the Nazgul is the Nazgul themselves, right? The Nazgul also um the will of the Nazgul is involved as they're trying to impose their wills on Frodo to reveal the ring, right? Um, they're calling to the ring as well. So, but again, we don't, we don't, we're not really, we haven't learned anything about that yet, right? So we have to, we have to kind of hold off on that. So that's why I want to hold off on that because we have another variable that we need to be able to talk about. But right now we just be, we just be speculating. So I want to wait on that. Um, but, um, but anyway, I, I certainly, I go along with Brandon as far as saying, I do think that we can conclude... Well, let me be one step more cautious than that. Okay. At the very least, we can say, I see no evidence that the ring is doing any strategizing here, is doing any planning. Um, And... Or you could even go further and say, this is active... This is active counter-evidence against the strategizing of the ring. Because think about it. The Barrow Whites, as we as will be revealed in Appendix A, are under the the orders of the Witch King. I mean, they're his creatures. He sent them here, right? They are subsidiary to the Witch King, um, who is just down the road from here, right? He's just a couple miles away. The Witch King is. So you'd think if the Ring had really good power of like analysis and strategizing. Right, the cunning thing for the ring to do would be expose itself to the Barrowites. I mean, what a golden opportunity this is, right? Forget the white, the whiteification ritual, right? Forget about that, right? Let's just get, get exp- expose the ring and 
make sure Barrow White gets it, and Barrow White can hang on to it until the Witch King comes done and done, right? Easy. What could be easier than that? Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and see, Mad Violinist, I don't object to speculating, but I do object to, at like Sherlock Holmes, speculating in the absence of evidence, right? That's when it gets dangerous. It's not that I'm, it's not that I'm never guilty of doing so, of course. Uh, but, uh, but in particular, I try when I know that we are going to get evidence, that's why I put things off. Right. Because I want to wait until we have the evidence that we can actually use uh, before we uh, launch forth into uh, into bold speculation. Um, Anyway, so. So I agree with Brandon that this does not. But then notice not only not only does the ring show no impetus of any kind to reveal itself to the whites as a means of getting back to the Nazgul, as a means of getting back to Sauron. But, or even just as sort of like calling to like, right? Which, in some sense, the whites are kind of like it, right? Um, But in any case, in addition to that, notice what the ring does do, right? We have positive evidence as well as negative evidence. Negative evidence meaning evidence based on what's not there, right? What the ring doesn't do. But we also have positive evidence. What does the ring actually do? What it actually does is try to encourage him to try to escape, from the whites. Now you could say maybe that is exposing it, it itself to them, right? Maybe he puts on the ring and they immediately perceive it and try to get it and hold onto it for the witch king or something. That's possible. I mean, we, but, um, but I don't know. I don't know. Um, at the very least, again, it's it's it's. I'm not real convinced that it's trying to get itself to the white. Um, especially again, I come back to Brandon's point. It's had tons of opportunities to do that. To this point, and it's it's not done that in the same way that it does with the Nazgul. Um, yeah, um, Lady Shmabiolak, I have the faintest idea what would happen to a Barrowite if it got the ruling ring, right? Um, you know, I, but I don't think we would have a, like, you know, instead of a dark lord, you would have a ghoul kind of situation. Like, I, it's just not, you know. Uh, the ring gives people power according to their stature, as Lady Goadriel will say later on. And Barrow Whites, though they're you know they're pretty they're pretty serious as far as Hobbit legends and stuff are concerned. Like I'm not trying to say the Barrow Whites aren't a big deal, but like in the larger sort of spiritual food chain of Middle Earth, they're not that big a deal. I mean, they're not going to be a threat. I can't imagine if it sets up on its own as like the king of the Barrow Whites that I'm thinking the Witch King can take it, even if it's got the ring. Right? So, that in itself would just be another way for that, you know, maybe that's the way the ring would, instead of the ring being like, okay, hey Bob, meaning the Barrow White, hey Bob, can you take me to the Witch King over there? Appreciate it. Thanks very much for the lift. Instead of doing that, I'd be like, hey dude, like, hey grave dude, why don't you reveal yourself and set yourself up as like the king of the undead? And it's like, yeah, I will do that. And as soon as it does, the Witch King is aware of it and goes and takes the ring and Bob's your uncle. Um, you know, possible, possible. But, um, but I don't, uh, I don't, I don't think so. Well, Valoria's laughing at me for having another ring sentience debate. Uh, Valoria, I have to confess, there's another, uh, there's another reason that I would, Brandon's comment, of course, was the primary impetus, uh, for my coming back to this conversation. Um, but, but I have another reason, 
Uh, and that is, um, I have been, uh, I started, re- I haven't like read through the Lord of the Rings in a long time. Oh, not a long time. So like since last year. Uh, so I, uh, I just started rereading Fellowship of the Ring, uh, this past weekend while I was raking leaves, uh, because I can't watch Babylon five while I rake leaves. So I have to, uh, so I was listening to the Lord of the Rings. Uh, and it was funny because I listened to the first five chapters in one go as I was, as I was doing yard work, uh, last week. And, um, which was funny. I mean, it was just funny to rip through in one sitting, essentially, uh, you know, what it took us like nine months to do. Um, and it was really fun because I was thinking back over, you know, I just couldn't help but remember all the wonderful observations that you guys have made and, and all the stuff that we've, uh, that we've been talking about. Uh, but anyhow, the thing that was kind of smiting my conscience as I was reading back through chapter two is that, you know, I mean, you know, of course, by now that I'm resistant to the idea of the ring being fully sentient and making plans and laying long-term strategies and things like that. Um, but I, I, I was thinking as I was listening to the conversation about, you know, the ring leaving Gollum and, and, uh, you know, Gandalf's comments about the ring, you know, uh, um, you know, the ring left him and all that stuff. I was, I was, I was feeling a little bit guilty that I had in some sense underplayed that, um, in my, the reason I think that I was doing that a little bit more than perhaps I should have was I was, I was wanting to, uh, make an argument for, resistance to leap too quickly to big conclusions from those passages. And as such, I think perhaps I downplayed them a little bit more than I should have done. Um, There's certainly lots of reasons uh, based on those passages to think that the ring has awareness uh, and can make a plan. I mean, uh, uh, Gandalf says, you know, that it, it, it figured that Gollum was a dead end and so wanted to leave it. Uh, leave it, leave, leave Gollum. Right. Um, and so the ring chose to leave him that, that does clearly suggest that at least Gandalf is theorizing, uh, uh, motivation, right. And thought process on the part of the ring. So again, I don't want to, I don't want to go too far the other direction and make it sound like I'm just trying to brush those passages totally under the rug. So, so Valoria, I was feeling a little bit conscious smitten, uh, that, uh, in my, uh, in my desire to kind of go beyond just kind of taking those passages and running with it, uh, that I, uh, I, I, I stepped too far in the other direction. So I want to be, I want to be, I want to be. So I think Valoria that that influenced me in, uh, going back and including this conversation again, uh, here today. Um, and yes, mad violinist, this will come up again when we get to, uh, when we get to, to Frodo's accident in Brie. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Good. Um, and Matt, I agree. It certainly is worth keeping track of what the One Ring can sense. We know it doesn't have any sensory organs. Um, and uh, um, yeah, so like what can it sense and what about them can it sense, right? Um, so let's think about that. So far, we have Gandalf's account though we don't even know to what extent he's talking about exactly talking about the powers of the ring and to what extent he's kind of anthropomorphizing it as he's discussing it or what, but no, but he's cautioning Frodo that, um, 
the ring did this on purpose, and they're talking about the agency of the ring to some extent. Anyway, okay. Um, so we've got that. But we also have the response to the Nazgul and the lack of response to the Barrowites here, how Frodo gets nothing from the ring. No thought of the ring, no temptation to put it on. Um, the whole time he's approaching the Barrow down, says that, oops, as they're, um, uh, as they're doing their, uh, um, yeah, sorry, there we go. Uh, as they're doing their, uh, um, uh, you know, as they're, they're, the fog is closing around them when the darkness comes over. I mean, at, at no point do we get anything from the ring there. So, does it mean the ring isn't sensing an opportunity? Is it not getting the connection here? Um, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really sure about that. Tony says it, whatever it senses, it seems to do th- so through the bearer. That seems very worth considering because the one thing that does seem very clear is that it is connected to the mind and to the desires of the ring bearer, Right. Think about that very first ring temptation we ever saw, right? When Frodo is looking at the ring in his palm and thinking how beautiful and perfect and it looks, how it is altogether precious, right, and how he doesn't want to throw it in the fire. Um, there, Tony, we have his own sensory input and emotional responses to that input being directly manipulated by the ring, right? So that certainly that certainly bears thinking about. Um yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, let's keep going. Let's get let's 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 bring Tom Bombadil back into this equation. Okay, Frodo fell forward over Mary, and Mary's face felt cold. All at once, back into his mind, from which it had disappeared with the first coming of the fog, came the memory of the house down under the hill and of Tom singing. He remembered the rhyme that Tom had taught them. In a small, desperate voice, he began, "Ho, oh, Tom Bombadil! And with that name, his voice seemed to grow strong. It had a full and lively sound, and the dark chamber echoed as if to drum and trumpet. Ho, oh, Tom Bombadil! Tom Bombadillo! By water, wood, and hill, by the reed and willow, by fire, sun, and moon, hearken now and hear us. Come, Tom Bombadil, for our need is near us. Okay. Um, first, absolutely, Mad Violinist. I agree that the end, uh, James Lieback is emphasizing the same thing. We had speculated about this before in our Why the Heck Don't They Call Tom Bombadil earlier conversation that we were having, um, both in the initial passage and in our response, uh, to Mariel's post on that subject on the discussion board. And, um, one of the things that we were noticing is that there's just no reference, right? I mean, there's just like Tom Bombadil is just absent, Right throughout the, you know, from their minds, uh, they don't even think of it. They don't even. It's not that they resist it. It's not that they say, "Ah, no need yet." It's just, you know, there is no Tom Bombadil, right? Um, and this gets confirmed here. Since the fog closed around them, the 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 memory of Tom Bombadil's house and everything that happened there has been gone from his mind. It comes back into his mind suddenly. Right. Um, one other thing that this would seem clearly to confirm is that the fog closing around them, that's the beginning uh, of the spell 
or at least I can't say the beginning because there's that question that the narrator openly asks us, right, about the sleep that they fall into um, and uh, whether that's a natural sleep or not. So it seems likely that the spell has already begun there. But we have um, uh, we have clearly um, the uh, um, the link between we, we, we've explicitly made the link between the fog and the spells of the Barrowites, right? So we know they're already under the Barrowites' influence before they leave. And it's interesting that the Barrowites' influence uh, through the fog seems to be, at least in part, to obscure even the memory of Tom Bombadil's house, right? Um, now, um, Blue Wizard, that's exactly the question I was going to ask. What, notice when it comes back. Right? He falls forward over Mary, and Mary's face felt cold. All at once, back into his mind. Right? So it's when he touches Mary's face that he suddenly remembers Tom Bombadil and the house of Tom Bombadil. I'm not sure I see the connection there. I'm not sure I understand that. Why do you guys think that is? I mean, on the one hand, you could say, well, it's what, like the urgency, you know, his fear for his friends or the urgency of, of his concern for the life of his friend who appears to be already dead. But, I mean, he was already tolerably worried about his friends, right? I mean, he just he just broke off the creeping hand that was crawling around the corner to grasp the sword hilt that was on his throat, right? So, you know, he's been well aware already, you know, that didn't make him think of Tom Bombadil. Um, uh... Mad Violinist is asking, is it the touching of Mary's face or the spell being somehow broken by his hewing of the hand? You know, that seems even more likely. Um, because that's what leads to his falling forward, right? Um, the breaking of the sword. The, and, we, and we talked about the breaking of spells inside of Barrows, right? And uh, uh, ways in which that's the you know the scene of frodo taking up the random barrow sword there and and um breaking off the hand and of course thinking about hands as we were before with hand and heart and bone and the hand of the dark lord the breaking off of the hand um seems like a, and given the whole kind of allegorical ritual nature of this whole event um especially the laying out and the sword and all that stuff um uh Anyway, that, that um, so the breaking of his hand would seem to be logically correlated with the white's power to act, right? Um, and so, in a sense, perhaps that break—that's what breaks the spell. That um, that makes that makes a certain amount of sense to me. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. Notice a couple things. But no, we don't have to talk about this poem in great detail because we already, we already have done, right? He's reciting this, which we've heard before. Um, but um, you notice, of course, the power of Tom Bombadil's name. And think about that, right? Frodo has twice asked, who are you? Right? And remember, what does Tom say? What? Don't you know my name yet? That's the only answer, right? Um, Tom Bombadil's name. That name which was, like, not enough for Frodo, right? Frodo wants more. Frodo wants to, wants to figure out who and, 
and what he actually is other than just the name, right? Um, and yet it's the name itself, as Goldberry implied, as Tom Bombadil implied, that has that has power. Turns out Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo is enough of an answer to the question of who he is, right? Um, that does the trick. Uh, and his repetition of the... Uh, um, his repetition of the uh, of the name here uh, is enough to have an impact, not on the Barrow White, but on himself, right? Um, on his own voice, as his own as he speaks Tom Bombadil's name, his own voice is amplified. Um, I remember I used to so. I have a great affection for. Did any of you? And this is you know gonna gonna be speaking especially uh, to uh, Tolkien fans of a certain age um, but did any of you ever listen to the 12 part audio dramatization of the Lord of the Rings that was made I think in the 80s uh, by the mind's eye uh, that was I think that has a that has a a, 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 a a tender spot in my heart as it was really my one of my first ever audiobooks. Uh, one of the first audiobooks I ever, I mean, of course, I knew it was abridged, and, and uh, you know, it was at that point my life's quest to get an unabridged recording of The Lord of the Rings, which I didn't have access to yet. Um, as I don't think at the time that I was listening there, uh, Rob Engelson had even made the unabridged recording yet. Um, but, um, but anyway, um, it was uh, it was fun. There's a lot of things that I don't like about. It. I still remember some some of the sort of the mistakes, but I still, you know, I listened to that those cassette tapes, and it was they were cassette tapes. I listened to the uh, cassette, yeah, the, the Ian Holm is Frodo, I believe so, yeah, yeah, um, and um, yes, oh, Freda, yes, that you 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 remember it? The narrator reading the sentence about the fall of Sauron, awesome job, did such an awesome job. Um, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, the Mind's Eye, uh, recording had the Tom Bombadil section and they had the Barrow Whites. Um, but they, uh, they, they messed this bit up. And I remember at the time being kind of annoyed about it, um, because Frodo recites the whole poem in a, in a, oh yeah, that's right. No, yeah, no, the Ian Holm one is not the same one. The the in home one is the is the BBC uh, production. This is not the BBC. Uh, this was by the Mind's Eye. Um, yeah, exactly, Tarlonio. It's a it that's a U.S. production, not the BBC one. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's I, I've heard them both. I had a friend uh, when I went to college. I I brought my cassette tapes with me, and I had a I had a you know a dork friend who. Uh, uh, was a was a, a big proponent of the BBC version, and so I, you know, I, he, he lent me that, and I listened to that one too. Uh, but um, but anyway, this was uh, no, this was the, this was the American version, the Mind's Eye one. Anyhow, they they messed this part up, and how they messed this part up was they had Frodo's Frodo saying the whole verse in like a weak, fearful, and quavering voice, right? And I'm like, no, no, drum and trumpet, people, drum and trumpet, come on. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, so um, he 
his own voice is invested with power, a full and lively sound. Lively being a very, very important word in this immediate context, right? In the Barrow White context, um, uh, given the deathliness that has been surrounding him and with which he has been, oh, at least the Barrowite has been attempting to, to inflict on him, right? Um, he, uh, to, for him, his voice to have a full and lively sound is kind of a big deal, right? And he calls out to Tom Bombadil. And uh, the um, uh, the last line, again, it's the same poem as before, but the thing that really struck me about it this time here, come Tom Bombadil, right? Remember that, uh, and yet, Hrothgar, you're absolutely right, everything related to to Tom is lively. Um, But again, I come back to Tom Bombadil's early songs, like the very first things they hear him singing, you know, dancing around, oh, you know, ho Tom Bombadil, right? Old Tom Bombadil is a merry fellow. Um, There's something in that last line, come Tom Bombadil, right? Following that same traditional meter of the ho Tom Bombadil or old Tom Bombadil. Um, There's something in that pattern, right? Which normally that first word has been a throwaway word, like hope, or even old, which conveys a concept, right? But it's not like a concept that's absolutely crucial to the thing that's being said, right? Um, but yet what it does do is establish that beat, establish that pattern. Um, ho Tom Bombadil. So when at the end of this incantation Frodo says, Come Tom Bombadil, it sounds like it sounds like the fulfillment of prophecy, right? It sounds like the culmination that it has been building up to, right? Like this, the reason Tom Bombadil sings that all the time, right? The reason he has that, it's like this is, this is why, this is why his song goes that way, right? Because the true, like the truest version of the, uh, line of Tom Bombadil meter that begins with Tom Bombadil's name or almost begins, begins one syllable after Tom Bombadil's name, begins with that placeholder symbol, like or syllable, what that syllable has been a place a placeholder for all this time uh, is come, right? Come Tom Bombadil, for our need is near us. And and the way that uh, that it makes that last line, again, as just sound like, not, not quite not quite like ful- fulfillment of prophecy, like the, more like the final resolution, right? The final uh, and immensely satisfying resolution of a really complicated chord progression, right? That's what it feels like there in that last line. Um, uh, it is a summoning. Um, and it's naming him. But of course, that's what he was modeling all the way through, right? Naming him, right? Right? Why did he go around? Why does this dude sing about himself in the color of his own clothes all the time, right? He was modeling, right? He was teaching them how to call to him. He was teaching them to name him, right? As he taught them in the end explicitly this verse, right? To summon him, to call him. And when they name him, his own liveliness, right? And even fullness in a sense, uh, comes into Frodo and he is named 
with power, and he is called, right? Um, but again, that's what it's almost like an advance extension of um, uh, hospitality, right? Um, like every song they've ever overheard him singing has anticipated this, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yet, come, I definitely agree. Come is, come is a command. Come is imperative, right? Come, Tom Bombadil. Why should you come? For our need is near us, right? Absolutely. Um, does it mean that Frodo's able to order him around? No. Again, it's clear with the way the influence of Tom Bombadil's name upon him and his voice uh, that it is the naming of Tom Bombadil in power that is making a difference, right? Tom's not being conjured like a genie, right? Um, but he's being, he's being summoned. He's being called to Right, uh, and uh, and he's gonna and he's gonna come. Um, there was a sudden deep silence in which Frodo could hear his heart beating. After a long, slow moment, he heard plain but far away, as if it was coming down through the ground or through thick walls, an answering voice singing, "Old Tom Bombadil is a merry fellow." Bright blue his jacket is, and his boots are yellow. None has ever caught him yet, for Tom he is the master. His songs are stronger songs, and his feet are faster. Notice what the uh, the rhythm of that last line especially emphasizes, right? Tom's poetry is nowhere near as uh, sort of monotonously regular as and... Uh, and certainly nowhere near as uh, monotonously monosyllabic as the White's incantation that we were looking at before. Um, but yet we can still sort of be sensitive for those moments when the rhythm does a, 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 weird, uh, a weird kind of thing, right? Um, and uh, and I, I definitely always hear one in that last line. His songs are stronger songs, and his feet are faster. The alliteration and the rhythm of stronger songs, right? Um, with the with the Sejura coming after songs, right? Because you have to pause there. Um, you can't keep going. You, know, you can't do his songs are stronger, stronger songs, and his feet are like the songs. And is not a foot, right? You just can't do that. You have to pause. His songs are stronger songs, and his feet are faster. Um, stronger songs really is is and then of course the alliteration really uh, really emphasizes it. Uh, Sakaya, that's a great point, uh, uh, reminding her of the deeper magic, right? Yeah, it is kind of like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, fourth thoughtless, we do know what it means now. By his feet are faster. Yeah, he got here in a hurry, right? It took him seconds. To get here from his house. Remember the reference to leaping on the hilltops, right? Um, yeah, yeah. He seems to have leapt across the hilltops all the way here, almost instantaneously. Um, uh, and yes, Matthew, you're right. The his in his songs gets the stress. Yes, his songs are stronger songs. Absolutely. Strong song. That first songs isn't really emphasized, right? I mean, you can do it spondaically, like his songs are strong, but it doesn't, uh, 
it's not it's not the same. It's not like the old Tom Bombadil pattern where you get the th- that's the tendency of these lines, right? To start with the three equal stresses in a row, but that because of the R there, right? His songs are stronger songs. It, it doesn't start with that pattern, right? So, um, anyway, um, yeah. Tony is asking, is his presence happy chance like with Old Man Willow? Well, Tony, you'll notice he doesn't make any pretense about that, right? He doesn't make any claims about that. He tells them that it was chance that brought him to meet them. Um, He says he knew that they were there. He expected them to come. Um, But it was only chance that brought him at that moment, right? He didn't. He was not responding to their call. Of course he wasn't, right? Now think about that in this context. Twice. He has come in and saved them, right? Uh, the second time, he has come in response to their call, right? But when they were just running down the path yelling help, he wasn't coming in response to their call. Of course not. He, they didn't name him, right? There was no come Tom Bombadil there, right? If they, if they had, yeah, he would have heard them, right? And he would have been there. But if they were just yelling help, he didn't hear them, right? But yeah, he doesn't say that it was only chance that brought him this time, right? Absolutely no uh, no concerns about that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Mad Violinist is saying, so I don't think it's like Shadow Facts, where Shadow Facts began journeying well ahead of the call. I mean, it's possible, Right. I mean, you can't rule it out. You can't rule out that Tom Bombadil figured that they would need help and so was hanging out and waiting for them to call. We don't know that. We'll see. We'll see if we see any evidence for that in Tom's conversation as we move forward. Um, But uh, let me say, I don't think it's at all unlikely, impossible that Tom could make it from his house to the barrow in a couple seconds, like he seems to have done. Um, that is to say, perhaps we'll, we will have reason to think that he was already hanging about. That's entirely possible. But I don't see any need to suspect that, right? That it does not... The, the idea that he's just come from his house in a few seconds does not seem to me in any sense implausible, right? So, you know, it's not like I, I feel like it's a, a challenge that requires... A, requires an explanation. Um, Notice, of course, his repetition of Goldberry's explanation of who he is. We've just seen his name, the power of his name, asserted in practice, right? Um, The... Because And this moment really is, and I think we can often forget to look at it this way, but this passage really is the final statement, right? The final resolution of the recurrent who is Tom Bombadil question that Frodo's asking, right? Um, Or at least it's an illustration of what he means when he says, in response to that, don't you know my name yet, right? Um, But it's interesting that he repeats, remember Goldberry's explanation when Frodo asks who Tom Bombadil is to say he is. He is as you have seen him, right? He is master. And Tom repeats that, right? None has ever caught him yet, 
for Tom, he is the master. He's almost, he's paraphrasing anyway, Goldberry's words there, right? In defining him, in trying to explain him to Frodo. Um, his songs are stronger songs, and his feet are faster. So, what is he? Who is he? Tom Bombadil is who he is, right? Don't you know my name yet? He is master, as Goldberry explains. And we see both of those answers in his song, right? But first and foremost, what is he? A merry fellow, right? Um, that was always a remarkable fact, right, about Tom Bombadil. That is, his merriment was always extremely pronounced and difficult to overlook, right? But of course, in this context, his merriment is the much more is you know that much more noteworthy. Uh, think of the not only the horror but the sorrow. Remember of the Barrow and of the Barrow Whites. And now this burst of joy, right? This burst of merriment has broken into, even before any physical breaking in has happened, right? His voice uh, is already breaking in. There was a loud rumbling sound as of stones rolling and falling and suddenly light streamed in, real light, the plain light of day, a low door-like opening appeared at the end of the chamber beyond Frodo's feet, and there was Tom's head, hat, feather, and all, framed against the light of the sun rising red behind him. The light fell upon the floor and upon the faces of the three hobbits lying beside Frodo. They did not stir, but the sickly hue had left them. They looked now as if they were only very deeply asleep. Now, a couple of you before were talking about the dawn. Right, and is it possible that the 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 power of the white was being interfered with by the fact that it was dawn outside, uh, even though of course Frodo had no idea of that at the time, and is that does that possibly have some influence on the freedom of mind that enables Frodo to remember uh the house of Tom Bombadil and to call out to Tom Bombadil? I can't um I can't uh rule that out. I mean it does seem conceivable, but I am not convinced of it. And there are two two reasons why I'm not convinced of it. One, uh, okay, no, there's one <laughs> primary reason why I'm not convinced of it, uh, other than the negative fact that there's, you know, the sensing that somewhere the dawn is happening, even if you can't see it, is the thing that we see elsewhere, right? We don't get anything like that here, which would be a pretty clear indication that the absence of that doesn't prove it, obviously, but you know it's one thing that undermines my confidence. The other thing is that of the two things, outside dawn is happening, and I just chopped off the dude's hand as he was reaching to complete his ritual. The latter seems like the more obvious and immediate stimulus, right? Um, to think that because if if the two things are happening at the same time, if the dawn is happening at the same time that Frodo breaks off the hand of the of the of the crawling arm, um, you know it's a coincidence that these two things are happening at once. I can't imagine that the Frodo's breaking off of the hand of the of the White's arm is just like a coincidence. I mean, like like that's just like a distraction. That was a mere delaying tactic, and it was actually the dawn coming in outside that really changed the situation, that doesn't seem to me to really fit. You know, I just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical about that. Um, 
And Matt is right in recalling that the Barrowites were able to influence the hobbits into sleeping at high noon at the Standing Stone. I don't see Dawn having a large impact, he says. I agree. The mere presence of the sun uh, certainly doesn't seem to rob them of power. Um, Even when the fog rolls in, the fog rolls in before the sun's all the way down, as I recall. Um, But anyway. um, so So I'm skeptical. But I'm not at all saying that I think the fact that dawn is happening at the same time as this is any kind of coincidence, right? Um, I think it's important, but the importance of it, I think, is not as a cause and effect thing, right, to break the spell of the white over Frodo, but rather as a, or rather it's not a cause, it's an effect, right? Um, that it is connected with Tom Bombadil, so that it, it is certainly very appropriate and very fitting that it be dawn, at the time that uh, Tom Bombadil breaks in, right, with the sun rising behind him. But did you notice that? Notice the significance of that? Think back to his words. The sun is rising behind Tom. Where's Tom standing? I mean, like, before he, like, you know, does the Kool-Aid man to the wall of the barrow... Right before that, um, where was he standing? See what I mean? Sun's rising behind him. Do you notice that? I've never, I never really thought about this before. Yes, yes, Marianne, fourth dauntless. He's standing on the east side of the barrow, right. He's standing exactly where he told them to like, pass the barrows by on the west side, right? Tom Bombadil, he doesn't care. <laughs> right? um, now, for Thoughtless, you're right. It doesn't mean that he had to walk around it as he's coming from the west of there, right? But um, but to me more, I, I see this as just like a, a defiant move on his part. He doesn't care, right? Like, I'm gonna, uh, not only am I going to stand on the east side of the barrow, right? I'm not just going to pass by on the east side. I'm going to stand on the east side, and from there I'm going to bust your door down, <laughs> Mr. White, right? Bring it, says Tom Bombadil. Um, and I absolutely, I, I just, I just kind of, uh, I just kind of love that. Um, and again, you get, get, and it's not just that he would do it just to be, um, you know, kind of in your face to the white, right? It's practical because he's letting the sunlight in. The sun is in that direction, right? So he's letting the sunlight in. Um, uh, yeah. So I mean, I, there's there's a there's a function there. Tony was asking if he is wrong to to hear a kind of um, an echo of Christian resurrection uh, in this imagery. No, well, I mean, the association between the dawn and not only the resurrection, but the second coming is a pretty well-established thing. I mean, that's why all uh, altars face east. All Christian al- and, and altars are on the east end of the church. Um, that's a thing, right? Um, and that's why, so that when the celebrant is, you know, doing the mass and facing the altar is facing towards the east uh, towards the rising sun. So that, that, um, 
is a really important piece of symbolism uh, in the Christian tradition. Um, do I think this is a reference? No, I wouldn't go that far, but um, but it's certainly not inappropriate, right? Um, the 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 bringing in of I mean, there's it's they're in a tomb, right? <laughs> they're in a tomb. They're the, the, Mary and Pippin and Sam at least are apparently coming back from the dead, right? So. Um, yeah, yeah, and mad violinist, the rolling away of this. We've got stones rolling, right? Yeah, I mean the 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 the, the connections between you know the the uh, associations with resurrection in general, uh, in Christian resurrection and the resurrection of Christ in particular. Absolutely sure. Yeah. Uh, again, do I think it's a reference exactly? I know. You know. Do I certainly do I think that uh, you know Tom Bombadil is Jesus? No, but. But but again, yeah, is that there? Yeah, absolutely, that's there. You know, I think that those uh, those associations are um, are pretty clear. Um, uh, Fourth Thomas, is it only a Catholic thing? No, it is a Catholic thing. The east facing altar thing is definitely a Catholic thing. Um, pretty sure it's also a thing in the C of E uh, Church of England. Um, those, I think, you'll find the same thing there. Um, uh, it's true. Well, Protestant churches don't care about it that much because the altar is not significant in the same way. Um, the, the, like the pastor of a the pastor or minister of a uh, of a Protestant church never does face the altar really, right? So that whole ritual moment isn't really a thing uh, in most Protestant churches. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Anyway. It's part of the, it's connected with the with the ritual enactment of of the mass of uh, of of communion, um, so that's why it's associated with those that have a strong ritual component, which would mean both Anglican and uh, uh, and Catholic. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I mean, JJ, I agree. Yeah, most most Protestant churches don't even have altars. Absolutely, it would be uh, unusual in most Protestant churches I've ever been in. Um, yeah, leading me, who was born Protestant, to vastly misunderstand the significance of the altar. The first time I was ever at a Catholic church, uh, I once embarrassed myself by putting something on the altar. <laughs> it was a table to me. I was such a uh, noob Protestant at that point. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Uh, okay, so they, they, uh, the sickly hue had left them. They looked now as if they were only very deeply asleep. So they're being, they're being woken up, right? They're, um, uh, and here, see, oh, Tony, now you've got me thinking New Testament imagery, right? Um, and I can't help but remember the story when uh, Jesus raises the girl, right? He res- resurrects the dead girl. Um, and uh, he comes into the room where her body is laid out and he says, she's not dead, but she sleepeth, right? And they laughed him to scorn. Um, I can't uh, can't help but think uh, of that passage here, right? They who appeared to be dead are not dead, right? They're only they're only sleeping. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good. <laughs> K- 
Countess of Olay is recalling the uh, all the Lord's Prayer trap that the Catholics set for Protestants to be able to detect them. Yeah, I used to fall for that all the time. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're just what you're talking about. Uh, anyway, okay. Um, let's keep going. Tom stooped, removed his hat, and came into the dark chamber, singing. Get out, you old white, vanish in the sunlight, shrivel like the cold mist, like the winds go wailing, out into the barren lands far beyond the mountains. Come never here again, leave your barrow empty, lost and forgotten be, darker than the darkness, where gates stand forever shut, till the world is mended. Okay. Um. <laughs> Hrothgar's pointing out we're getting to three songs in one class. Of course, the first two were easy and short, and one we'd already talked about before. Uh, I doubt we're going to get past this one, though. Okay, all right, because this is a big deal, right? This is Tom's song in response to the Barrowites' incantation, right? Um, This is, in a sense, the direct response to that. Get out, you old white. Vanish in the sunlight. Why did he come in on the east side? Because that's where the sun is, right? So he's letting the sunlight directly in uh, to the barrow. Shrivel like the cold mist, like the winds go wailing, out into the barren lands far beyond the mountains. Come never here again. Leave your barrow empty. Lost and forgotten be, darker than the darkness, where gates stand forever shut, till the world is mended. Okay, that last line is obviously the trickiest one, so I want to I want to I want to wait there though. Um, we'll we'll get to it. The first line is simple enough, right? Get out, you old white. It's pretty straightforward, right? Vanish in the sunlight. Um, that's remarkable. Has um. Has Tom used internal rhyme before? Do we have precedents for that? I mean, just looking quickly. I mean, like the end rhymes, right? There's a lot of the end rhyming. But, I mean, apart from the repetition of Bombadil, Bombadillo, um, I don't recall that kind of internal rhyming. Which makes Get Out, You Old White, Vanish in the Sunlight uh, a sort of striking... uh, a striking line in that sense. It sounds striking. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay, Merry Yellow Berio, Tillian, that's well remembered. But it's not the same, right? I mean, Merry Yellow Berio, that's within one phrase. It's not... That... that Pause the caesura at the middle of the line is pretty common in Bombadil meter. Um, I'm trying to remember an occasion where he did an internal rhyme at the end of each half line like that. And I don't remember one, right? So that's an interesting thing about that otherwise very simple line. Um, Shrivel like the cold mist, like the winds go wailing, out into the barren lands far beyond the mountains. I think it's important to notice that that's all one sentence, right? Other sentences are really short. That's a long one, right? Shrivel. uh, Shrivel like the cold mist, 
like the winds go wailing out into the barren lands far beyond the mountains. That's that's where he's supposed to go wailing, right? I remember, you know, the first time listening to and even reading uh, before listening to this song, um, I was always, in my head, I was always starting a sentence with Out Into the Barren Lands and getting confused because I'm like, wait, what, what happens out in the barren lands far beyond the mountains, right? Um, but of course, it's not, it's not the beginning of the sentence. It's the end of the sentence, right? That's where he's supposed to go wailing like the winds go wailing. For Thomas, I was just asking that same question. Which barren lands? And, of course, my... Uh, what I can't help but think of, Fourth Dauntless, is the fact that... Um, like the winds, right? Go wailing like the winds out into the barren lands far beyond the mountains. I can't help but think of the wind in the that song, the dwarf song in The Hobbit, um, which also ends up in barren lands, but, well, no, I mean, it ends up in the heavens, of course. Before it gets there, it ends up in barren lands. But I don't think we can be expected to be thinking about that. Um, I agree that Angmar makes sense, but I'm resistant to that. But I'm not resistant to that for a really good reason. It makes perfect geographical sense to say that the barren lands far beyond the mountains are Angmar up in the north, right? Which also has, uh, you know, the benefit of being where the spirit came from in the first place, right? But Amathorn, I am much more likely to think along those terms that this is simply metaphorical, right? Um, the barren lands far beyond the mountains means something different or something even a great deal more remote than Angmar. Because um, we don't know which mountains we're talking about, right? We don't know which barren lands we're talking about, and we don't know what mountains we're talking about. Uh, and I'm wondering, right? Anyway, come never here again, leave your barrow empty, lost and forgotten be, darker than the darkness. That's the second time in the poem that he has characterized the white, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Matt was confirming that uh, he doesn't see any other internal rhyme uh, structured like that in any of Tom's earlier poetry. Thanks, Matt. Um, yeah, and 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 uh, Matt's pointing out that in places where there could be something like it, uh, Tom seemed to vary his words almost to avoid it, like Bombadil to Bombadillo, right? So it doesn't exactly rhyme. Um, but um, anyway, like I said, he addresses the um, he addresses the Barrow White twice. First, he calls it "you old white," right? The second time, he calls it darker than the darkness. I take that as a form of direct address, right? Darker than the darkness there. Um, it could be that he is dooming him to be darker than the darkness, but I think he's addressing him like, hey, hey, you, hey, darker than the darkness, lost and forgotten be, okay? Um, 
it's possible that he's sending him into darkness that's darker than the darkness that he's referring to the void the outer darkness which is darker than darkness because it's void right it's not merely a absence of light um but if so it's a little bit strange because I would want a preposition, right? Like, lost and forgotten be in the dark that is darker than the darkness, you know, that, 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 uh, um, uh, there seems to be some kind of, uh, linking word that I want there. Um, just the comma, lost and forgotten be darker than the darkness sounds to me like more like, uh, uh, direct address. Maybe there's a sense in which it's both. That is, I, I do think he's talking about the void. He's talking about the outer darkness. But I think the point that he's making is that he already is. Like, Tom ba- in a sense, Tom Bombadil isn't doing anything to him. He's not changing him, right? Um, the void is... Uh, he is already of the void, right? Um, like Morgoth, he, the white, <clears throat> has taken the path down into the darkness that is darker than the darkness. Um, that's the point, is that they all end up in the darkness, in the void, in the outer darkness. Um, it is the destiny that their own path uh, leads them to, right? Um so, maybe, uh, so, because notice, see, it's, he's talking about the void, right? I, I'm not denying that. But he's not just talking about the void. He's talking about the white. That's clear the more I the more I think about it, right? Lost and forgotten be darker than the darkness. Like, may you be lost, may you be forgotten, may you be darker than the darkness. That's the structure of that line, right? So again, is he talking about the void? Yeah, but the void is a metaphor for the for the white, right? He is condemning him to the void. But again, I think that he's suggesting that he's already... Again, it's like the manifest destiny of the white, right? Um, Equating the white with the void. Yes, exactly. And so it is, Countess, in a sense, him just telling the white to go where he belongs. Um, You know, he's... in, In that sense, he's not even really kind of performing an action on the white, right? He's, um... He's just... Um... He's just fulfilling what the white itself has already chosen, right? Um, Where gates stand forever shut till the world is mended. What is where gates stand forever shut? Now, I agree with all of you that are suggesting that the gates there are clearly the gates of night which lead to the void. Definitely. Definitely. 
And until Arda is remade, those doors are going to remain shut, right? No questions. But it's not identification that is the trick here. It's syntax that's the trick. Where? Where gates stand forever shut? What does that clause modify, right? It's tempting to want to go back to like the winds go wailing out into the barren lands far beyond the mountains, right? That would seem to work. And it does, certainly, since we end up at the gates of night at the end of the song, it does suggest, it does at least kind of go backwards and imply, that that's what really fortifies, the for me, the idea that the, the barren lands far beyond the mountains are metaphorical rather than geographical in their designation. He's not telling him to return to a specific locale in Middle-earth, or even outside Middle-earth, um, but that he's speaking more metaphorically. However, um, syntactically, that's illogical. He's, he doesn't say that. He doesn't Because we have those inconvenient two lines in between, right? Um, where gates stand forever shut, syntactically speaking, cannot modify the barren lands far beyond the mountains. Because it's in a different sentence, right? We have to find the thing modified by where gates stand forever shut within the sentence that begins with lost and forgotten be, right? That is all. That, those last two lines are one idea. Lost and forgotten be darker than the darkness. You are darker than the darkness. I condemn you to be darker than the darkness. Um, I call for your darkness to manifest itself, right? Where gates stand forever shut till the world is mended. What does it modify? Darkness. I think. Right? It's It's an adjective clause. Where gates stand forever shut. Which darkness? Right? The darkness where gates stand forever shut till the world is mended. So I think that that last line is clarifying... Clarifying the darkness. How about that? Um, what darkness we're talking about here. Dark, darker than the darkness. In which case, syntactically speaking, doesn't that mean that Tom Bombadil is saying that the white is not as dark as the void, which is darker than normal darkness? But he's saying it's darker than the void? Darker than the... the saying he will be darker than the darkness where gates stand forever shut till the world is mended. Right? Could it be lost where gates stand forever shut? Dean Schwab wants to know. Lost and forgotten be where gates stand forever shut? Possible. Yeah, Hrothgar is... Um, is suggesting... That, basically paraphrasing and saying, be so nothing that you're even less than nothing. 
Yeah. Because the darkness where the gates stand forever shut, the outer darkness, it's the void. It's oblivion. It's privation. There's nothing there. It's nothingness that's there. And so darkness. And thus darkness, right? Darkness which is darker than regular darkness. But is it darker than the white? Could the white be, in a sense, darker than that darkness of privation? You know what I'm thinking of? I can't help but think of. I can't help but think of Ungoliant's unlight, which is not mere want of light, but is a thing, a dark thing, which is darker than mere privation. Hmm. Sorry, thank you for being patient with me. Um, yeah, good. A couple of you are talking about how it's thinking again, thinking with ongoing and thinking about um, consuming light, uh, everlasting, everlasting darkness, positive darkness. I can't pretend to understand the positive darkness because I've never understood that really. I mean, like, theologically, philosophically, I don't understand the unlight, really. Um, but, um, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, for Thomas, I agree. I, I don't want to go too far with connecting it to Ungoliant specifically. I brought up Ungoliant just because I'm thinking, like, when asking myself, would that even make sense? Would it even make sense for him to say you're darker than the void, right? That is to say, if that last line modifies darkness at the end of the previous line, that's what he's saying. He's saying you're darker than the void, right? Does that make any sense? Is there any way in which that makes any sense, right? And my answer to that question is unlight. Yeah. With unlight, that would make sense. Um, uh... Yeah, Darren, I wonder. Uh, Darren is recalling, of course, that the everlasting darkness is what Mithros and Maglor are afraid of at the end of the Silmarillion. The everlasting darkness shall be our lot. Right. What is the relationship between the everlasting darkness that they fear and the void? Because, see, here's the thing. The void... What is outside those gates is not evil. The void isn't evil. It's just empty. Right? Um, There was only one person who ever thought the void was evil. Right? Um, And that's Melkor. Right? He was annoyed with the void. Um, And frustrated and impatient about the void. But that's just because he wanted to make stuff. Right? And was impatient of the emptiness of the void. And when he, Melkor, 
is cast out into the void when he's captured and um, sentenced again. I've ne- that's I've never understood that to be a permanent punishment. In fact, we know it's not a permanent punishment because we know he's going to come back from the void. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've always seen his... Uh, I've always seen his being sent to the void as a kind of... Uh, I don't know what holding action. See, yeah, JJ, exactly. It's not like the lake of fire into which, you know, the, the, the beast and the dragon will be cast at the end of revelation. Right. Um, the void into, I mean, it's the, the passage in the Silmarillion that describes that, has a, a a kind of flavor of that, but it's it, it's clear that it doesn't work the same way. Because Melkor being cast into the void at the end of the first age is not the end. It's not even the end of his influence over Middle Earth, and it's certainly not the end of his story. He's gonna come back. Yeah, Matt, it's like solitary confinement. I mean, it's it's literally the worst thing. Like we know that he's not a a, a void fan, right? Um, it's where he's safe. He can't. He can't do any harm, and he hates it there, right? So it's punishment for him to be in the void, because he can't do anything. So, yeah, exactly, uh, Frumius. Um, yeah, they put him in timeout. That's exactly it. Melkor is in timeout during this, the second through, through like, until the Dagor Dagorath, he's going to be in timeout, right? Um, that's what the void is to him. It's not his permanent destiny. It's not a permanent punishment. It's not like the lake of fire into which, uh, into which the dragon is cast at the end of Revelation. Um, it's the emptiness. It's, yeah, it's solitary, right? So, um, because he's going to come back, right? He's going to come back and then he's going to get killed. Right? By Turin Turinbar. But that's another story. Um, see, Aruron, I hear you. I hear you about, you know, Aruron is questioning, you know, the use of, of Christian theological structures here to talk about this stuff, wanting to think about Norse stuff or something like that instead, or, or maybe the Kalevala. But um, but the thing, a ruler on that you can't get away from is that it was firmly Christian. Remember that hells of iron was quite literal. Um, the link between the hell, purgatory, and, and paradise as actual afterlife constructions in the Book of Lost Tales is very explicit. Um, yes, there is... Uh, you know, a heavy Norse influence on a lot of stuff. But but I, I, I can't get away from the Helen Purgatory stuff because it's it's encoded in the DNA of these stories from the very beginning. Now he gets away from that, right? He doesn't he doesn't talk in the in that 
But the language is still there to the halls of waiting and everything. I mean, the halls of waiting are very purgatorial, right? You can tell on account of fan or isn't coming out anytime soon, just like you might have expect uh, from somebody in his position, right, who is in purgatory. Um, so uh, th- to me, that's the that's the main thing, Aruron, my main justification, I guess, if you need justification for thinking about things in these terms. Uh, is that it's 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 part of the story from the beginning, and, and I am not convinced that it ever totally drops away. A lot of the more simplistic concepts, like let's build a terrestrial afterlife system for the elves, right? I mean, again, in the very initial system, like Melkor was in charge of hell, so that like the the you know like when when elves die and go to the bad place, they go to Melkor's hells of iron. Right. That was that was part of the original construction. And he 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 ditches that kind of thing very early on. Right. But the idea of the halls of Mandos purgatory never goes away. And I think it's always purgatorial. Um, but um, so, yeah. Anyway, um, I was about to say, I don't want to get uh, too far sidetracked on this, but it's a little too late for that. Anyway, this is all very relevant is extremely relevant to this one line of of uh, poetry that I'm wrestling with, and um, and by the way, if um, for those of you who feel like I'm making very heavy water, <laughs> very heavy weather rather of the uh, the end of the not heavy water, that's a totally different thing. Uh, I'm making rather heavy weather of these last two lines. Um, what I'm doing here is essentially giving you a peek behind the curtain. If you've read my Exploring the Hobbit book and stuff like that, and you enjoy hearing me do my analysis of the poetry, um, this is what happens backstage, okay? Um, and I haven't done all this in advance because I kind of think it's fun to do it together, and I hope that you enjoy it too. If not, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Wait for the book version. But but this is this is how I do it. This is how I approach the poetry. Um uh, people ask me, you know, one of the questions that I find most embarrassing to try to answer is when people who like have read and enjoyed my Hobbit book will ask me something like, um, you know, where do you get your insights about the Hobbit? And I'm like, dude, I don't, I never feel like I have insights. What I feel like I do sometimes get is conclusions that I have very laboriously slogged my way towards by thinking through this stuff from every angle that I can, uh, seeing what, seeing what fits, you know, it's like, uh, you know, holding up a hundred different pictures and seeing which one fits best, right? Which one works best of all these things. Um, so, um, so anyway, I did not to like destroy the mystery or something, but this is this is how this is how, this is my process, right? This is how I do it. Um, but it's only by stopping and thinking about this stuff that that you because my my experience is that if you don't really stop and ans- and ask yourselves these qu- which seem like such pedantic questions, right? I know it's. Even for people who like the idea of poetic analysis, which, believe me, is a pretty small subset of the population to begin with, but even people who like that, um, often, you know, like if you're in poetry appreciation mode, right, if you just want to be stirred and moved by poetry, the last thing you want to do is be beating your head against the question, like, which word does this clause modify, right? 
But in my experience, if you don't ask, if you don't force yourself to really come down to brass tacks and try to figure that stuff out, you end up making mistakes. Um, and that's, um, and that's what, um, leads to a lot of hasty interpretation of poetry. Like, what led to the first ever article I ever published, right? My article on the, the song of the ants and the ant wives, which emerged when I was just looking around at what people, I was kind of interested in that poem. And I was like, Hey, I wonder what other people have said about that. So I was looking at any reference I could find to that poem in other critics. And I found that they were all totally, not all of them, but many of them were to a greater or lesser extent, completely not getting the context of the, like they weren't paying attention to what the poem actually said. Uh, they were all treating it like it was an entish song. I'm like, no, he says it's an elvish song. Right. So let's think about that. Anyway, again, like he just kind of, it's, but, but it's easy. It's so easy to miss that stuff. If you don't really stop and, uh, focus on it. Um, right. Okay. <laughs> Lincoln, you're totally right. There's no way we're going to get to Brie by our anniversary. Especially since, Lincoln, we've got, what? Two more weeks, I'm pretty sure, between now and then. I'm going to really have to hit the accelerator next week because we're going to take Christmas week off. So we'll we'll meet next week. And then I think think it's just the week after that. So, yeah, it's going to be... it's going to be close. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe we can get through the end of this chapter. But anyhow, anyhow. Okay, never mind. <sighs> okay. Conclusions. Conclusions. All right. Lost and forgotten be darker than the darkness. You know, when I come back to it, I still like best my very first reading that it's a direct address. That he's not condemning him to become darker than the darkness, but he's observing that he already is. He is darker than the darkness of the void. Yeah. But I think where the gates stand forever shut almost has to modify darkness rather than lost and forgotten. Because I don't think he's condemning him. What's he doing? Condemning him to go through the gates of... the gates that stand forever shut? (laughs) Right? Seems a little implausible, doesn't it? Um... Rothgar says, then is, is aware the barren lands with that reading. Yes. Do I think that Tom is actually condemning the Barrow White to the void? No, I don't think so. He tells him never to come here again. Right? If he's actually sending him into outer darkness, there's not going to be any question of him coming back to this particular address. Right? He's saying, don't re-enter this barrow. 
and he's sending him off to barren lands far beyond the mountains. We don't know where exactly geographically that is, but it is far away, right? And into desolate places. I believe, however, still a terrestrial destination. Therefore, I don't think he's telling him to become lost and forgotten where the gates stand forever shut, right? That, you know, go through the gates into outer darkness. Again, first of all, I was going to get through the gates because they're forever shut. Um, until the world is mended. Till the world is mended is the end of all of the commands. Get out, vanish, shrivel, go wailing, come never here, leave your barrow empty, lost and forgotten be till the world is mended. Right? That is the time limit on those commands. Um, yes, Kyle, I think that Tom could be showing pity by not sending him to his ultimate doom until the time of the mending of Arda comes. Right? That he that there's still hope, possibly. Right? Possibly. You know, I, I can't... And Tony, I blame you that I'm, I can't... Like, I'm thinking in all New Testament quotations this evening, but, um, but I also can't help but remember the legion of demons that Jesus casts out um, uh, who beg him not to cast them into the deep. Right? Um, uh, and that he allows them to get enter into the pigs instead, you'll remember. Um, so, anyway, yeah, I, 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 I parallel here, I think. Um, Gravity asks, is there a place for a white in a mended world? Would he return? Well, Gravity, yeah, he would. But only if he gets mended, too, right? I mean, he's not going to be able to come back and set up shop and re- resume his barrow whitish business at that point, right? The only, can, the only time when he's going to be permitted to return would be after the mending of the world. And the only conditions under which he would return would be if he himself is also mended, right? Don't forget the pity. Don't forget the sadness and the pitiableness of the whites in addition to their anger, and hunger, right? They're they're sorrowful, they're sad, as well as horrible. Um, and I think that Tom is not immune to that pity, right? Um, so if we wanted to talk about um, uh, as um, who was uh, who was talking about this. Um, I forget. Anyway, um, uh, anyway, sorry. Um, about, about just about the 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 golem like the hope for the possible redemption of the Barrow White, right? Um, I do think till the world is mended, and the fact that he is sort of implicitly invited to return after the world is mended um, is. Uh, not saying, and that's when your sentence is going to end, right? Um, that where you have uh, served your time, but that he, uh, um, but that he, of course, would be mended then as well. Um, yeah. Well, Fourth Thoughtless is, says he's really uncomfortable with the idea that Tom would deliberately send a corrupted spirit like this out to a place where people might stumble across it. 
Two things I would say to that first. Number one, he's sending them into barren lands far beyond the mountains, right? So they're, they're barren. There's, there's, nobody, there's nobody there, right? But two, notice what else he's telling them to do in addition to going. Right, he's supposed to go wailing after he's shriveled like the cold mist. Which remember, the mist has been burned away by the light of the sun. Right, um, so yeah, he gets to go to the barren lands far beyond the mountains, but only after he's vanished in the sunlight and shriveled like the cold mist. Right, I don't think he's going to be much of a threat to anybody, even if somebody does stumble across him in the barren lands. Right, um, and I think he's going to have some company. By the end of The Lord of the Rings, I think we're going to see several others go the way of the Barrow White here to barren lands far beyond the mountains, right? Such as Saruman and Sauron, right? Neither of them is annihilated. Um, but they're going to be uh, driven, go wailing with the winds, right? Yeah, Darren was thinking of Saruman too, absolutely. Um and remember, Gandalf doesn't say that Sauron is going to be destroyed. He's going to be reduced to a, an impotent spirit who's going to go wailing like the winds, right, out into the barren lands far beyond the darkness. Um, so, um, so yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, Awesome. Well, that was cool. I sure learned a lot about that poem tonight. I think I've, uh, uh, I think I've drawn some conclusions. Thank you for bearing with me and for helping me out with that. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And a couple of you, Matthew was talking about this earlier, and Darren, you're right to 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 recall and to to, to bring up this kind of thing too. Uh, we certainly we can't, uh, we shouldn't. Um, end without noting the relationship between the end of Tom's poem and the end of the White's poem, right? The White looks forward to the moment when the when the Dark Lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land, right? And Tom Bombadil, of course, at the end of his song, looks forward to Arda remade, right? He looks forward to the mending of the world, whereas the White is anticipating the ultimate marring of the world, in which case, in a sense, we can already see how the white is already darker than the darkness, right? The darkness of its own despair, the darkness of the Dark Lord's own despair, right? Um, his victory, what will his victory look like, right? His victory will look like the destruction of everything. His victory will look like um, uh, ruling over a dead world, Um just as the white's victory would look like making Frodo a white like him, right? Um, so, um, uh, yeah, anyway, um, whereas, again, what Tom is suggesting, that which makes, I think, not only the mending of the world reference corresponding to the, you know, ultimate destruction of the world, uh, anticipated. It's it, not only that correspondence, but coming back to that note of hope, that note of redemption even, or at least the potential for redemption uh, that we were discussing before seems seems to me interestingly relevant there. Um, okay. All right. Um, that's good. 
we got through Tom Bombadil's song. That was my that was, that was pretty much my goal. Uh, next week we'll run naked on the grass, so that'll be fine. Uh, and we'll get to Mary's comment and talk more about the nature of Barrow Whites. So we'll we'll leave it there. Um, and um, uh, yeah, so thank you for everybody. Oh, we're going to do our field trip now. It's field trip time. Uh, so I'm going to say goodbye to Twitter folks. Thanks for joining us on Twitter, everybody. And I'm going to, we're going to head out and go back to the Barrow Whites. So uh, thanks everybody uh, who has been uh, joining us just for the book part. And we are going to have, um, we are going to have class next week, um, as I said. So we will do, we will do that. We'll have next week and then a week off and then we'll be back the week after that. All right. Let's uh, let's head out to the Barrow Down. So we're just going to ride. We're, we're, you know, right around the corner from where we are in Bree. So we're just going to ride out there. We can kind of take the back exit this time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll just go in the go in the, the close way. So we'll just kind of pause for a minute at the crossroads to make sure we've collected everybody who's going to meet us. So anyone who is. Good evening, uh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. This is uh, Valori here. I'm on as Kofi today, and uh, happy Hanukkah. That's right. Everyone celebrating tonight. That's right. So, yeah, I know. Yeah, I've, I, I've made a joke about talking about the sentience of the rings. That's only because I've gotten a little finger wag a couple of times when you're talking about sentience of the rings, going, no, 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 we're not talking about that. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No. I've uh, I've uh, made an agreement only to talk about it when you're not bringing it up. So you know that's. Uh... <laughs> so if you do it, it's fine. It's, 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 exactly. It's totally fine. All right. There we go. I was lagging just a bit there. Turn the yeah, corner and bring. Uh, it's sluggish tonight, so. We should be better when we get to the downs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we'll wait here for folks, and I know sometimes folks will join us from other places in the world, so we're right outside of West Bree at the crossroads. Mm-hmm. It is funny, we are talking about the blackness beyond the void. It's like, what's blacker than black? And I immediately think of SpongeBob SquarePants, because that's what all my kids are watching right now. <laughs> Because there's that one bit he's in the town that's like in the deep, deep dark sea where you have like all the deep sea fish and stuff like that. And he goes, this isn't your ordinary darkness. This is advanced darkness. Advanced darkness. Okay. Advanced darkness. I have to admit that uh, uh, SpongeBob is something I have pretty much completely missed. Uh, I don't know SpongeBob at all. Neither of my kids were even in the slightest interested in SpongeBob. And so therefore I never really saw it. Um <laughs> So, I, I I hear lots of okay. I think we can head out now. I, I hear lots of uh, lots of references, but uh, mm-hmm. but I haven't I haven't seen any. It's it's a lot of fun. I, I see my brother's eighteen years younger than me, so he was the prime age for the SpongeBob Kids when it came out in ninety nine and two thousand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, then he passed it on to my kids when I was living with my mom and with the kids. Right. And now my kids are trying to get the baby into it, so it's just been. Yeah, it's been constant background noise. Yeah, no, I just like generationally missed that. You know, that was uh, I was in grad school when it came out, so I was married, but I had no kids, and so by the time 
you know, my uh-huh. oldest was old enough to watch anything. SpongeBob had been around for a really long time and just kind of wasn't his thing anyway. So, okay. So for those of us who are riding here, we're going to go for those of you who are lower level, stay with the family here. We're going to yeah. just blast straight through the Barrow Downs and because we're, we're going to go, we're, we're in the Northern Barrow Downs here just to show the, to show the map. So we're going we're gonna to power straight through it, uh, going past a bunch of things we saw last week. But I want to go to the southern Barrow Downs, because there's the whole southern area, uh, which is a higher level area. So uh, we can try to avoid some of these whites, which of course aren't paying any attention to me, but um, pass right past the... Uh, Dead Spire here again. There we go. If you're in trouble, I can't see you. I'm riding in the van, as we learned last week. You're in the van? Okay. That's good. In the van. All right. So, uh, I think you covered this before when we were talking about Lord of the Rings, because I wanted to look it up again and find out what the definition of white was. Yeah, well, in origin, white just means person it's like one of those creature too yeah yeah it's a very generic term yeah it's a very generic term um it's a very commonly used uh like the gowan poet uses it a lot so gowan and the green knight Mm -hmm. in middle english um uh as uh you know a a word which just means like a generic word meaning person um uh like another uh, word, of course, that he uses a lot in that sense is freka, uh, which looks like freak, which is kind of fun, but it doesn't mean freak. Uh, it just, again, it just means like, you know, he's like, he's like, he's a guy. Um, it's f- fairly generic. Um, uh, I mean, not all these words are totally generic. I mean, there's some other implications to them, but, um, um, but you'll remember even in the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien uses, uh, that word. Remember when he says um, uh, uh, they are elvish whites? Uh-huh. Right? He's using it in the old Middle English sense, like English or elvish folks, elvish creatures. Dudes. Yeah, el- elvish dudes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's, uh, so it's, you know, it, it, it does come to be used. What I'm not sure of uh, is did it, when did it come to be, because Tolkien used the phrase Barrow White for a reason, right? In mm-hmm. the adventures of Tom Bombadil. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't, th- I mean, I, you know, I've, 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 you know, sort of a longstanding joke is, a, you know, my, my longstanding joke of translating Barrow White as Grave Dude, um, which is literally what it means. <laughs> um, but, um, but it's, 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 it's clear that when he used the, he used the phrase Barrow White, it's hyphenated, I'm pretty sure, in the original poem. Right. Yeah, he does like his hyphens, doesn't he? Exactly. So he's he's kind of constructing a phrase there. Um, I don't recall. I'd have to. Somebody would have to look it up in the OED if you if 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 you have a, if you have a chance. Look it up. Look white up in the OED and see if there are quotations that use the word white in the like undead sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to Tolkien, are there 19th century, 18th century examples of white being used in that way? Because it's hard, though, because you can cherry pick examples of white being used of somebody who like may or may not be dead. But again, it was such a generic word that like 
that doesn't prove that they were meaning it specifically to imply an, like an undead creature. Yeah, I um, specifically look for usage where it's paired with barrows, usually maybe in local legends or something like that, because, you know, those things were all over England all the time. Right. There was always rumors about the, the ghosts and fairies that lived out there, so... Yeah, so, exactly. So if I, I find any connection, it'd probably be there. There's clearly a concept that... The, the, the fact that it's hyphenated shows that Tolkien is thinking about a, a particular concept right he you know he has a particular idea in mind um it's like it means it's a thing right like if it's hyphenated it it's a it's a it's a thing he's describing it's a barrel white um and um uh i know i mean it's hard because i think the primary i think the primary association of just the word white with like the word white has come to mean like a form of undead but i'm pretty yeah. sure that's from dungeons and dragons yeah i'm very sure it's dungeons and dragons looking through tolkien and going exactly ah, cool. the d- and the dnd monster manual is lifting it straight out of tolkien as they lift so many things straight out of tolkien so um so it's it's, it's, uh, it's now synonymous with sort of you know, walking, walking, walking dead. Yeah, exactly. Revenant. Exactly. Which, which is, which is like, uh, you know, from Tolkien via Gary Gygax. So yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. um, Language is fun. It is fun. But, but so that's why what I would be interested to see if there are clear sp- undead specific uses of it in a pre Tolkien, in a clearly pre Tolkienian, like post medieval context. Um, okay, guys, that's your homework. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Anyway, uh, but see, I'm 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 here stopping the field trip because I'm thinking of linguistics <laughs> and etymologies instead of archaeology. Oh, and, down a rabbit hole here. <laughs> exactly. All right. So what do we have here now? Here on the in the southern Barrow Downs, um, I like the clinging fog, which we get in the northern too. Um, uh-huh. The fact that we immediately drop into this marsh is kind of interesting. I think, right? Because we have yeah. We look over yeah. here. We have these tombs of a kind that we did not see in the northern Barrow Downs. The the barrows were of a very different kind, right? Before they were just little earthen hills, right, with like little post and lintel doors put in. So they were they were clearly mound, you know, uh, they're they're mounds that were mounded up, but also dug down beneath the mounds. Mm-hmm. Um. Here we have what is clearly a stone structure. It makes use of a of a of a stone face to this hill, yeah. right? Um, but it's not just the stone face. I mean, you can see from these these horizontal stones up here along the top that um, you know this is actually it's been like deliberately reinforced, and we have we have you know a, an actual stone face. And what seems to be were these double doors that have been broken down? Could be, or this could just be shoring up the. Oh, you're right. No, I see the arc behind it. Yeah, it looks like it blocked off. Yeah. So this was, and that's a totally different project, right? I mean, to to chip a stone out of the rock of uh, you know the side of a rock face is totally different from the barrows that we saw in the northern Barrow Downs, right? Uh-huh. Which were which were earthen. You know, there were tunnels and a mound. Um, <laughs> They almost look like the, the the structure had been built first and the hill built second. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They they did very much look like that. Um, 
And uh, yeah, now Tony is asking an excellent question: Are the are the Celtic-ish designs here supposed to imply a relationship between the Barrow Builders and the modern Dunlendings in the South? Those look like wolves. What, is, what do you think? Wait, where the do you see wolves? Carved into the archway. I'm uh, oh yeah, right the archway. Yeah, uh, they almost look like Book of Kells kind of looking. Ah, uh, yeah, it's a head, all right. No, wrong way, wrong way. Over here, this uh, arch. There's so, another one up here. This is the arch isn't standing there? by itself. Okay. It's got two animal heads in the corners. Hang on, I, I, I got a, I got an animal head on the keystone here too, though. Oh, you do? Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, that almost looks like a raven's head sideways or something. Well, it might have a mane. Could it be a freaky horse? Could be a freaky horse. I don't know what the, like, tubular things on the right-hand side are, though. Uh, Harness? Yeah, it's not very distinct. It does look beaky. The mouth yeah. looks beaky. Raven, maybe? Ravens are sort of a thing around here. Yeah, but it's got an ear. Unless that's an eye. Uh, yeah, it's an eye. No, the top one is, but there's the, there are two of them. There's the... This is an eye yeah, up here. I, I can't tell you. It, it looks like a bird's head facing down. Like right. the, the beak is... Yeah, the be, like be, beak beak facing down, right. But this is hair. This looks like a mane. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a grotesque head, like half a head sideways yeah. maybe I don't know is it just supposed to be as JJ is suggesting a Lovecraftian horror that's possible <laughs> that's possible an eldritch an eldritch it's, other right it is an eldritch being um and we have this like what is this like a semi little pukul face here down here and, and sorry I'm looking where's the uh, the freestanding arch where is your freestanding arch over oh, here this thing kind of looks like not work I don't know yeah, oh right, yeah, with here. the wolves, right on. I got you. Yeah. You got your wolves. You're right, definitely wolves. But that's a really interesting style. Looks, yeah, that looks very sort of Nordic influenced. Though. Yeah. Yeah, I can't decide whether it's Nordic or Celtic or one of those assimilations of both. Um. Yeah. Um, okay. So, yeah, okay. But anyway, but back to Tony's question. Yes, we know the Barrows are ancient. They predate, long predate, the arrival of the Numenorians. Um, are they supposed to be sort of to imply a connection to the Dunlendings? Well, Tony, the one thing I will say, we see exactly these same, When you go to the Barrows and Tombs down in Dunland and Enidwife, you see exactly these oh, same yeah. patterns. Uh, path of the dead. That's right. Yeah. So I think that I think that they are suggesting that that they are suggesting a basic cultural similarity among the like indigenous peoples um, who were originally living in this area prior to the Numenorean kingdom. And uh, and yet, JJ, I was I was looking for a dragon. I was expecting there to be a dragon. Where were you seeing a dragon? I was expecting a dragon because this uh, kind of like bronze inlay sort of sculpture is it behind the doors? 
the dragon back there? Yeah, there it is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, there it is. Um, oh, yeah, like a worm kind of thing. Yeah, and I, that I've seen in several other places. That's a very common... You can see that in many a tomb where you find these kinds of swirl patterns, any of them that have... They'll have, like, big bronze doors in some places, and you can see that, that uh, sort of dragon rampant... But it's a it's a very beaky dragon, which makes me wonder if maybe that's the dragon up above the arch up there. Though I'd never really noticed that. Are, before. are you talking about this this shape of the stone here, or the the doors behind the, the rocks? doors behind? You can just see. Okay. If yeah, you, if angle, you angle, it, angle your yeah. camera up, exactly, guys. If you get real close and angle your camera up, you can just see over those rocks a bit. Exactly, and I'm sure in other places we'll get a better look at that at some point. There is something right. on the stone right in front of you, though. Yeah, and I saw that before. Is it a staff? Uh, or a... Some I kind can't of... tell if it's a face or a, or a bird faced sideways. Or... It's very... Maybe it's a face. Is it like... So, see, we've got the uh, the two eyes, maybe, and then the curly swoops and the nosy and nose, thing. And then a long line going down from yeah, the Yeah, the mouth. long line. I'm, I'm trying to go... Where's my pukul, dude? Yeah... And it's not the same as the Poogle. I was wanting to see if the Poogle dude had the same kind of shapes to his face. Would uh, you call him a Poogle dude? Yeah. Well, I'm not. I don't want to call him a Poogle man officially because he's not officially a Poogle man. Uh, because uh-huh. the Poogle men are associated specifically with the Druidine, who are totally different culturally from the people who lived here and built the Barrows. Um, uh-huh. But it's kind of Poogle esque. Right, so, um, oh, hey, Countess of Olay has found a, uh, uh, a horned helm and shield on a different rock. Where's the, oh, it's the Pukul dude that you're talking about. So, okay, yeah, could it be a horned helm? Yeah, helm, it's definitely a shield. The bottom part is clearly a shield. I was thinking of the top as a face, but it could just be a helm. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was. I thought it was the very heavy unibrow of uh, of the Pukul dude, but I think crested helm is uh, is yeah yeah yeah. And I got nervous when she said horned and helm. I was just like, oh no, they did a Boromir hat. Uh, yeah. Oh, you mean like 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 Rankin like Bass? Oh, like the the the, the, the Bakshi Boromir? Yeah. No, no, no. no. Yeah. Not that kind of horned helm. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. That's not a nose. That's a nose guard. Yeah, that's right. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, and yes, I agree. That's a. It is a. It is a, a very Celtic kind of shield. Anyway, okay. Um, so these art. This archway is really fascinating. Not only because it's got the wolves, which are cool, but what's the point of it. <laughs> point of it. I, I get, kind of, to some extent, the point of these, right? Like these, uh-huh. you know, the Stonehenge-esque. At least we have, like, a nice, uh, a nice uh, precedent for this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And the implication or theory was always that that's all that remains and that it used to be, you know, there were probably more of them once upon a time. In that mm-hmm. kind of shape, but that's With that a mis- mysterious purpose, of course. Exactly, but that's totally different from this, right? This is this is an arch. It's not 
This is not a just maybe it was part of a stone. wall that was made out of uh, more perishable materials like wood or something. It is possible. Or maybe there's maybe the the hill used to come right up to it because but because of all the water like eroded. A stone arch set in a wooden wall, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Conceivably. Mm-hmm. And since we are on a swamp here, the rest of it could, of course, have burned down, fallen over, Fell and then over sunk into the swamp. Into the so swamp. <laughs> that does make sense. Yeah. I'm glad we're on the same page. On that <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Glad we have that figured. Um, so, okay, I want to go over here. So let's, let's, let's go inside a barrel. We've got a bunch of very large standing stones. Oh, it's the barfing ones. I hate the barfing ones. Oh, yeah, ones. I hate the barfing ones, too. They're just so gross. Okay. Oops. And I'm uh, getting creamed over here. I got, like, six of these guys on me. Oh, yeah. Um, Anyone want to help? Oh, dear. Okay, are you all right? Yeah. Okay. All go right, team. Okay. Go team. All right. Uh, so I want to go in here. Now, this, of course, is an old style. This is like the northern ones, right? But hang on a second, because we have these got these stones. Uh-huh. Which are the same as the ones from the north. Yeah, that's our... Uh, so does this... Our old friends, uh, our old friends the cringing, <laughs> fanged, skeletal guys who have shields and not bound wrists, but probably gauntlets. Um, but are probably or skeletal they could, wearing or gauntlets. they could be resting in the fetal position. That's like right. Buried corpses. Uh, yes, exactly. Those dudes. Anyway, one wonders if this is... Um, if this implies multiple generations of... or like multiple different phases of architectural style, right? Like these, which are like the northern the ones up north because you'll notice these have the the what are these called I forget there's a word for this what's the word for this the standing stone structure with a thing across the top there's a word that is eluding me yeah for that sorry I learned this in 6th grade I don't remember men here yeah that's it men here yeah 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 yeah. I thought men here is freestanding I guess are the men here freestanding uh yeah, I think the miners are the, the yeah the, the yeah. freestanding ones. But the, the Stonehenge thing is Countess. That's Post exactly and it. Post and lintel construction. Post and lintel joke. construction, except it's not exactly because it's not a door. Yes. But anyway, whatever. The point is, we've got those thingies here, and we've got the carved stones, and we've got the same uh, design with the fetal position and or crouching in terror skeletal dudes wearing armor. And we have, um, and the same construction with the obviously, again, this is clearly an artificial mound, right? Which is uh, uh, heaped up over with the stone, but, an, you know, an earthen structure with a stone to, to, to build up the tunnel. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. So this would be the older, whereas the stuff we were looking at down over here, the ones that who came along later then, presumably, and either built a freestanding structure unwisely down in the swamp or uh, and, and, and did the stuff on the cliff face. Right. In you know, either delving into the hard rock uh, or it looks like they did delve into the hard rock um, and built that whole stone face. Presumably came after. 
right? Dolmen. Uh, hey, that sounds like a familiar that, word. We don't know how long this area has been a swamp. I mean, considering yeah. how old these things are, it could have been something like a river changed direction. Yes. Oh, very likely. Okay. Yeah. No, I don't actually. Oh, I don't actually think yeah. that they were like, "Hey, where should we?" Uh, like, you know, like the. Dead. Exactly <laughs> that 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 the surveyors were saying. Well, like we've got good news and bad news about the potential site for that big barrel you guys wanted to build. Like, uh, you know, the good thing is we found a really nice, attractive rock face that we can build it in. The bad news is that the entrance is already a swamp, so you know you have to wear your galoshes in order to, uh, you know, go to your ceremonies. Um, nah, we already put the <laughs> JJ, JJ says all the other whites said I was deaf to make my tomb in a swamp. Uh, <laughs> exactly. All right. Anyway, let's actually go into Grantham here. Sorry. Sorry. See, I keep saying we're going to go in and then we don't go in. Okay. Uh, so inside here, we can see, I like the stone reinforced walls. We can see how this has been built up here on the inside, just like the outside. We get the same, um, uh, you know, curvy, swirly designs here. One of the things that was interesting me in Grantham here, compared to, say, the much simpler barrows that we went into uh, in the northern Barrow Downs, uh, are these things around the edges. I think these are doors? Things around the, things around the edges. Let me see. Things around the edges, yeah. Along the walls. These are... Oh, oh, yes. Are these doors, or are they vertical doors? Tombs are they like entrances or sarcophagi? So here we have got a skeleton behind a mm-hmm. a broken down wooden door. Right, it looks like he was attempting to get out but didn't quite make it out. Um, that would appear to be solid rock behind him. Mm-hmm. So, or do you think they cask of Amontillado him? Just yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now I like to think he was already dead when they cask of Amontillado him in, into the wall here. But yeah, I think exactly, Hrothgar. I'm thinking these are sealed burial niches rather than like tomb entrances, like separate tomb this entrances. Is, it might be something for servants, somebody who's less important than the person who's who's you know the head honcho around here. Ooh, and, and we got skulls in these little holes here. Yeah, we get we get skulls in the niches here, and these are. Do they do anything to the skulls? Like put horns on them or carve them? Is that carving on the skull? That is carving. Well, it's carving underneath it. Carving underneath it. I'm like, is the cranial bone actually inscribed? Is that just macabre uh, decoration? Or yeah, is I that can't figure like, out if that's just a, a decay, a random is it decay like a pattern. This is what we do with our skulls when we're done. You know. Yeah. Or they're loaded in like a Pez dispenser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's like ski ball. You pull one out, another one drops down. <laughs> you know? And then we've got this, which I don't understand at all. Oh, is this? Well, maybe all these heads are trophies, right? Because this looks like it could be a desiccated head. I don't know of what a cargrim, maybe. Um, uh, yeah, maybe. Can't really tell. It's a largish head. Oh, a troll! It's a troll head. It's a troll head because it has no neck. Right. Well. I mean, you know, once it's decapitated, you know, the whole neck yeah. issue becomes a little moot. But um, so uh, I'm seeing a pattern here that all the, all the the severed heads look like trophies, and all the people behind the wall might be servants or warriors, bears, maybe. Yeah, bears, yeah. Family. So that these family. so that these were niches, right? 
with all. So that would suggest that there would be then a big central tomb where the king or chieftain or whoever would have been buried, and that all of these yeah, I are. Think so. These are all, you know, slab of some kind around here. Right. So let's, let's see if we see anything like that. We've got some dudes over here. Notice the whites are armed here, right? Uh They're, they're skeletal, but armored. More theory that these were, you know, honor guards. Right. Warrior spirits, right. As opposed to, um, because the whoa, hang on, look at this over here. Yeah. Oh, a sarcophagus. Ooh. It's got a sarcophagus. That's clearly a sarcophagus. Yeah, ain't your flimsy wood model. Yeah, no skeleton trying to. They didn't just cast with Monto Auto this guy. I found I found a big sarcophagus standing right here. Where who? There's a right here. Look at these guys. Oh yeah, look at that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we got actual I thought it was a plinth, stone. but it's not a plinth. That's a tomb. But yeah, I thought it was a beer or something, but Yeah, no, cuz oh yeah, it's it's open. Look at that. Yeah. Uh, Presumably it's no longer occupied, but would have been at one point. So uh-huh. yeah, so these are Oh, okay, there's another sarcophagus over there. So we got where's that one? I lost my sarcophagus. Oh, there it was. There's the sarcophagus so there. What do you think in order of importance though? Would the sarcophagus be the most important, and then the—I mean, the the big, you know, the the ones in the middle of the floor. Yeah. Would they be most important, and the freestanding ones be less important, and then the woods would be like the the serfs or something? Um. What you got to think that the people set into the walls are the least important, right? So it'd be a little bit surprising. <laughs> okay, right. JJ, I agree. The 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 severed heads are the least important. I can I can agree with that. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, no, I meant the ones behind the the wood. Yeah, yeah. The skeletons trapped behind. Yeah, the exactly. Wood. I'm looking. Okay, and I thought this was a door, but it's another sarcophagus. See, it's the the sarcophagi on the walls do seem important. At least some of them. Like, I mean, this one. You just look at the the whole elaborate structure built around it, right? You've got this whole big. Yeah, yeah thing. I mean, it caught the eye from across the room. Um, it's a focal point. Yeah, so I gotta think that there's probably a dude in there, mm-hmm. and that he was probably important. So the question is, is he more important than the dudes who would have been in here? I'm gonna go with yes, because... So, okay. And so the reason... Wife and children, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering, if maybe this is like the chieftain, and these are like family... Or something. His wives or, something. His wives yeah. or whatever. They, they kin. Be, they wouldn't have the, the the armor carved in like this guy over here. Yeah. Yeah. But exactly. Still require and, attention. But that's why I would theorize that the barrows, these ones, the tombs here, in the open, in the middle, are less important than the sarcophagi because they're barely decorated. There's no real sign of anything. Whereas the sarcophagi are planted in these big niches with the like decorative skulls around them and the arches. Yeah. The carved now, arches. These look very Mayan actually. Hmm, yeah. In a certain light, especially the columns. Uh look the we have, kind we of have oriental designs here. Dragon heads at the top above the sarcophagus. Yeah, yeah. 
quite detailed dragon heads with teeth and and angry eyes and everything. Serpenty, if anything else. Yeah. And is the, are the I like these sort of like these horny branchy ones right here. I wish I understood what the motifs meant, like if something indicated something or other. Yeah. Yeah, you almost feel like you could figure that out, but not quite. Yeah. It, it gives you it gives you hints that that might mean something, but it, you're kind of missing a key here. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Okay. Turston is saying there's a big bricked or stone chambers in the middle. Let me, let me go back to the middle here. Okay, so here's this big southern chamber that we're in here. Mm-hmm. And then... Right, I've got no, more bricks in the wall, suggesting again that this is all artificial, just dug out of the dirt... And then we got some freestanding white warriors there. Barrow Wardens there named. Okay. And then this looks similar with a similar and similarly carved arch around the sarcophagus. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely same as the first. I definitely incline to the idea that the whites um, are can we get through down this way? It's over here. This does pass through. Yes. Okay. That being way late here. Uh, yes, yes, there is that. Hey, I'm being attacked. <laughs> wow. Oh yeah, that was a special one. Oh, was it? Yeah, slightly special. Slightly special. Slightly special. Um. Now, I can't explain why we're building, why we have, you know, the iron braziers that are lit and burning in here. Um, I mean, I kind of think that has to just be atmosphere. Oh, this is the one that you guys were talking about in the middle. And there are the dragons. See, I told you we were going to come come across more of those dragons. Yeah, so there's, we got the beaked dragons. So I think that's definitely what that was on the keystone. So we have the arch with this swoopy thing. And the the tubular things, right? That's this, right? You see those are like its arms and like sort of serpentish body there. That's the same mm-hmm. pattern as them. Those two those tubular bits. And right yeah. there's the keystone. There it is. The tubular bits that I was referring to right up there. Yeah, still don't make it any clearer up there, but I can see it's kinda of dragony. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the same face as the beaky dragon. Yeah, yeah. There. Yeah, it's definitely got the beaky face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like the, the lion-like haunches on the, the dragons. Yes, yes. Fun interpretation on that one. They almost look like griffins. Yes, yes, I agree. Um, though with the bird-like face, actually more like hippogriffs, actually. Though no horsey... Characteristics. Well, they'd have they'd have equine backsides. So. Yeah, exactly. And there they and yes, there are wings on their backs there. Um, yep. JJ. Uh, Functional or not, we're not sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, Tony, that would be interest, an interesting comparison to compare and contrast these bronze dragon carvings in the doors with the three-dimensional wooden statues of the dragon totem for the dragon clan in Dunland? Yeah, that would be. Because as I recall, that is... Spiky. Yeah, there is, it is more spiky. Um, but, but beaky still, right? Um, yeah, oh, sorry, uh, yeah, actually Linus has one in his front yard. <laughs> um, yeah, his wife hates it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that one, that one almost looks like, uh, like some sort of spiky, spiky, uh, saurian lizard. It, it doesn't look quite as bird-like, it definitely more lizard-like. It has a beak, but it's like a... yeah. Like a dinosaur kind of looking iguana yeah. kind of face. Yeah, and I agree. This is clearly the most important of all the tombs. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Some importance in there. Because it is completely freestanding. Does it connect to the ceiling? Yes, it does. Um. It looks like it's yeah, and it looks like it's uh, sealed off on all sides. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And we've got the Which is helm and shield on either side. Oh, I know. It's my least favorite thing about these dragon or griffin doors. Um, is that... Uh, <laughs> they are griffin doors, right? I'm sorry, it's late. <laughs> <laughs> More doors and griffin doors. Yeah, I can't help it. Um, uh so uh, anyway, yeah, these uh, the Gryffindors, which I think is a great name for them, um, yes. are of course unopenable, right? Um, yes. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. But you're right, JJ. They are brass doors, not gondors. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So. Um, Gondors, we could get in. Yeah, true, true. Okay, well, um, that was fun. But see, this is so what they've depicted here. Just to sum up the Southern Barrow Downs, or at least this part of the Southern Barrow Downs. We'll come back to the Southern Barrow Downs next week because I want to get down to the evidence of the because we will get to the Dunedain part um, yeah, because. Yeah. It makes uh, it, it, of course, makes perfect sense that we should find a big old ruin, um, Dunedain ruin, here in the middle of the Barrow Downs because we know that the men of Cardolan um, took up residence here. Um, so, um, yeah, exactly. Um, you got to think they must have been fairly desperate. Um, but uh, anyhow. Uh, we'll get to that part of the Barrow Downs, but it's interesting we can already see the different kind of zones and levels, right? Um, the, the simpler kinds of barrows, even the ones which were elaborate, like the one I went down with all the water in that I didn't want to get lost in. Um, that's yeah. more, but even that one looks looks like mine shafts. It's nothing like as elaborate as this. You know, we didn't get um, the same kind of carvings, the same kind of elaborate. This really looks like a big multi-generational like clan full full clan tomb right 
Um, yeah, and you can see they definitely have like their own totems and, yes. and sort of guardians in mythology in this one. Yes. And, uh, you know, we saw similar items up in the north, but nothing as advanced and and uh, and developed as we see down here. And then, of course, we'll go further down to the Numenorean side. So it's interesting to see that stuff uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, building up over time as we go. Um, so that, I, quick question. Do you think this is evidence of the society evolving or, or do you think that the, the northern part is the society degenerating? Well... Uh, it's Middle Earth, so I'm going to go with B, degeneration. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be a trend. Yeah. Um, but, of course, and, and of course, this is something that is really noteworthy, right? The Numenorians, who were much more advanced than the culture that built this tomb, came after. And it's one of the things that makes the Numenorians so remarkable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is that... Of course, now looking back on the Numenorians of the you know of the Second Age, um, and uh, in, and of the, of the early Third Age, now modern people like modern Gondorians and whatever have degenerated from that time. But it's interesting in seeing in a place like this, um, and noting what an important moment the return of the Numenorians to Middle Earth was. You know, because it's one of the only times when you get that kind of movement. You know, that you get. Um, a yeah, a shift forward. You know, a sudden, a sudden leap forward in in that in like technology and uh, and development and and everything else. Um, so uh, so yeah, that that was a uh, but 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 from there we then resume the degeneration process into the modern into the modern age. Um, so now I want to see if we can see some of the other tombs further south of this and see if we can find any evidence of an even older and greater civilization than this one, thinking that they probably <laughs> did degenerate over time. But we'll see anyway. But it's getting late. So I'll let you guys go. We'll return to the Southern Barrowdowns next time because, hey, we've got at least two more weeks in the Barrowdowns before we get to Bree. Uh, so no problem. No problem at all. Anyway, so thanks everybody for joining us. Thanks for uh, uh, being with us on Crick Hollow here today. Those of you who are here in game, uh, it's good to go around with you um, in uh, the swamps and uh, among the dead here. Uh, Thanks everybody, uh, both for the class and the field trip, and we will see you guys next week. Bye now. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org slash fund.